Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come and come swiftly. Our winter friend, the polar vortex, is back, and once again, the cold swirls our ears, and yes, the tears of your windchilled eyes did not deceive you. You pushed the right bell. Santoro Lawrence P. And here you are. So skitter in. Let me button down the nook while you shed some layers, find a bowl and treats, pour something warm, find a chum and a place, and settle. We have a most exciting evening planned. Ghosts by Sylvia, Schultz, that is, who returns with another episode of Lights Out, this time a personal account of some nearby spooks in the workplace. There's that. And we'll have a zombie-like tale of universal infection and maybe just a tad of hope from Ms. Barbara A. Barnett. Before we bungle forth, however, I have a sad item to bring to your attention. Earlier this week, we lost another great entertainer, Harold Ramis. Out in the wide world, Harold is probably best known for the Ghostbuster films and for Groundhog Day, as well as Analyze This, Analyze That, many more. He wrote for the National Lampoon Radio Hour and for the National Lampoon Stage Show, and his work for Second City Television, SCTV as we all know it, is counted as some of that series' best efforts. He wrote, among other things, Animal House, the National Lampoon Vacation Movie, Meatballs, Caddyshack, Stripes, dozens more we'll never forget. I could not call Harold a friend, but we did know each other. I posted this on our Facebook page, anyway, earlier in the week, and... I mentioned that once upon a time I was able to cajole him into doing some video segments for a yearly sketch comedy show I directed here in Chicago, The Gridiron Show, and suddenly I found myself writing for and directing 
the author of Ghostbusters and the director of Groundhog Day. I could never quite believe he was allowing me to direct him on camera using my material, but he was. And as he always was in my presence, he was gracious, generous of his time, and very easy to work with. At one point during the shoot, I asked for several retakes of a sequence he thought he'd nailed on the first take, but which didn't quite gel for me, so I insisted we do it again, and what I take away from that moment is the look he gave me, and that little Harold's smile on the other side of his saying, quite seriously, yeah, you really are a director. And that is my favorite review of all time. Harold was only 69. In today's years, that's a pretty sprightly season of life. We'll miss you. If you follow such things, it's Bram Stoker Award season again, which always begins in the chill of winter and ends in spring's warmth. Pertinent to us here in the Nook are the six nominees for the award for Superior Achievement in Short Fiction. Short fiction, so far as concerns the Horror Writers Association, consists of stories under 7,499 words in length. One word beyond that, and you've slipped into the long fiction category. But for us here in the Nook, short fiction is what we, can I say, traditionally cast on Tales to Terrify. Two seasons of presenting the short fiction nominees yield a tradition. Well, this is our third time out. And here are the authors and the titles of the Bram Stoker-nominated tales we hope to present on a pair of shows just prior to the May Bram Stoker ceremony this year in Portland, Oregon. And they are Primal Tongue by Michael Bailey from Zippered Flesh 2, Smart Rhino Publications. Snapshot by Patrick Freivelt from Blood and Roses, Scarlet River Press. Night Train to Paris by David Gerald in the January-February 2013 issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Lisa Minetti is nominated for The Hunger Artist, another entry from Smart Rhino Publications' Zippered Flesh 2. The Geminis by John Palisano from Kirill Mad 2, from the home of psychological horror, written backwards. And Michael Reeves' Code 666, from the March-April issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Over the next few weeks, we will contact these six authors who hopefully will allow us to record and cast their stories prior to the May 10 Stoker Awards ceremony, which is the climax of the World Horror Convention. I wish we could be there, but at about that time, Ms. Cecilia and I hopefully will be settling on a new home in the East, in New England, finding just the right spot to transplant the nook, fireplace, trees, year-round snow, cats and abrasive large dogs, so no us at HorrorCon. Ah, well. And now, as promised... 
Sylvia Schultz is back in the nook, and tonight she'll tell us a bit about a bar she and her husband Rob once owned and operated in Pekin, Illinois. And yes, of course, it was a haunted place. Sylvia? Hello, and welcome to Lights Out. I'm your host, Sylvia Schultz. We've got an interesting show tonight, as always, so let's get right to it. Let's go Lights Out. My husband, Rob, has long had the dream of being his own boss, of running his own business. In August 2011, he got his wish when he purchased a bar at Court Street in Pekin. He started in on renovations immediately, spending many late nights in the building, doing painting and repairs so that the cantina would be perfect on opening day. It was at the end of one of these long nights, when he came home and fell into bed, that he told me an interesting bit of news. Oh, by the way, our new bar is haunted. Two of the former owners of the bar had tales to tell of strange noises and even stranger sights. One of the owners spoke of bar stools that would swivel on their own, and a jukebox that would play music at odd times, even when no one had fed it money. Another owner started his story with the flat declaration, I don't believe in ghosts. But one night after closing, he was standing at the end of the bar, counting the day's take from the cash register drawer, and he heard footsteps behind him. You know how in an old building like this you can feel the floorboards flex as somebody walks across them? I felt that. Boom, boom, boom. I thought maybe I'd left the door unlocked and someone had gotten in after closing. I swung around and came up with my fist cocked ready to clock somebody. But there was nobody there. One of the former bartenders shared an even stranger story with us. He was behind the bar working one evening when a sharply dressed gentleman came up the stairs and went directly into the men's room. The bartender noted the man's tuxedo suit and top hat, but didn't find it odd, as it was New Year's Eve. The bartender did get concerned when half an hour or so passed, and the gentleman still hadn't come out of the men's room. The bartender went into the restroom to check on his customer and found the tiny room empty. It came as no surprise to us but that our ghost might be a natally dressed man in a top hat and tails. The building, of which the cantina occupies the second floor, has been through several incarnations, including a post office, a cigar lounge, a gentleman's club, and a meeting hall for both the Knights of Pythias and their ladies' auxiliary, the Pythian sisters. In the center of the pressed tin ceiling at the cantina is a strange triangular pattern, some sort of sigil worked into the ceiling, the symbol of the Knights of Pythias. And when the fraternity left the building and the next owners started to clean it out, they found a gruesome souvenir, a small casket containing the bones of one of the founders of the Knights. Even though the Brotherhood no longer uses the building for their gatherings, traces of the fraternity still remain. Perhaps some of the members themselves still meet there, too. One evening, a friend of mine stopped by the cantina for a drink. 
I knew she was a gifted medium, and I noticed that her gaze kept drifting towards the front room. I found this interesting, since other members of my ghost investigation group, Research and Paranormal, had said that they'd gotten weird feelings about the front room and about the hallway connecting the front room to the office in particular. I make no claim to sensitivity myself, but even I got a peculiar feeling in that hallway. I walked with my medium friend to the front room. Okay, I can tell you're getting something. What can you tell me about this place? She spoke slowly. A sense of peace suffused her words. The men like to gather here. They really enjoyed spending time in this front room. This is a meeting place for not the Masons or Elks. It's the Knights of... Oh, not the Knights of Columbus. It's an unfamiliar name. She moved to the big bay windows at the front of the building. A delighted grin lit her face as she looked down, and she chuckled. I'm seeing horses and carriages going past on Court Street. <laughs> After she had finished, I told her what I knew about the place. She nodded. Knights of Pythias, that was it. You've definitely got at least one of those guys still enjoying this place. She said that Top Hat Guy is a recording, and that's what he does. He gets out of his carriage on Court Street comes up the stairs, and goes into the men's room. Our door guy, Doug, had his own encounters with whatever entity haunts the bar. He told me that several times, as he has sat at the bar nursing a drink, he has seen some sort of shadow in the mirror behind the back bar, a shadow that appears in the mirror to be several feet behind him. I told Crystal DePew of the Illinois Ghost Seeker Society about the activity at the cantina. So, one Sunday when the bar was closed, she and her team came up to do an investigation. One of the neatest things about working with other paranormal investigation groups is seeing what kind of toys each group brings. In addition to the full-spectrum cameras and digital voice recorders, I was introduced to a gadget called a Melmeter. This device gives two simultaneous readings, temperature and EMF, electromagnetic frequency measurements. Having this dual readout is very useful in paranormal investigation. Cold spots are a good indicator of a spirit presence. In order to manifest, ghosts need to draw energy from their surroundings. Often this leads to a drop in temperature, the classic cold spot. There's a theory, too, that the presence of a spirit can affect electromagnetic fields in an area. One of the first orders of business in an investigation is to do a walkthrough of the building to note any machines that are giving off electromagnetic energy or the presence of wiring in the walls that may affect the readings gathered with the EMF meters. I met with Crystal and her group outside the back door and let them into the building. Doug was there, too. Given his experiences in the bar, he was eager to join us. Other researchers from IGSS joined us a bit later in the evening. After the team had done the initial walkthrough, they set up a few cameras and voice recorders, and I turned out most of the lights. The cantina was a very peaceful place in the dark. With the only light coming from the old-fashioned sconces on one wall, the rich red of the walls just seemed to glow. The investigators and I decided to start the first EVP session 
in the men's room. Don't laugh now. That's where a full-bodied apparition has been seen. It was a logical place to start. Jim, Rob, Danielle, and I stood in the tiny men's room. Jim held a DVR, a digital voice recorder, in his hand, and Danielle held an EMF meter. We asked the standard questions. Can you tell us your name? Do you know what year it is? Why are you still here? Hoping to get some sort of answer. Usually, doing an EVP session is like a game of 20 questions, except that it's completely one-sided and actually kind of boring. But every once in a while, something happens during the session that chases the boredom away in a snap. The men's room at the canteen is a tiny room with dark gray walls and an impossibly tall ceiling. It's at the end of the hallway, and the hallway bends to form the door, not an easy place for sound to travel much. The four of us, two men and two women, stood in the men's room asking questions. After we asked, can you tell us your name, we all heard an improbable sound, a woman's indistinct moan. It was just a snippet of sound, not a drawn-out cry, but we all heard it. We did several more investigative sessions, mostly working with the voice recorders. Doug had the most delightful experience. One of the entities we encountered seemed to like him. He was holding one of the melmeters and getting readings of unnatural cold along with high EMF. The readings changed when he moved the meter, and he finally narrowed his field down to a spot about three feet high just in front of the stage. I held my hand out over the spot Doug had pinpointed. My palm seemed to tingle with a low-grade electric awareness, a tingle that faded when I moved my hand away from that spot. Jim and I sat for a while, along with London Depew, in the office of the cantina, still asking questions, still hoping that some spirit would oblige us an answer. We didn't get any responses, although something strange happened at that point, too. The office area leads into the back hallway. The hallway connects the office area and the front room, where my medium friend spoke with the men at the club that still met in the bar. I'm not the only person who has gotten weird vibes from the back hallway. Doug was still wandering around the main room of the bar, charmed that the entity, according to the Melmeter readings, seemed to be following him. He got as far as the door to the office. Then the meter's EMF readings dropped to zero, and the temperature went back up to normal room temperature. Doug stepped back out, and the entity came back to hover around him. But no matter how Doug encouraged and cajoled, the entity refused to follow him into the office. The meter picked up a presence wherever Doug went in the building, a presence that stopped resolutely at the threshold of the office door. It was getting late, so we wrapped up the investigation. I turned the lights on, the IGSS team collected all their equipment, and they left, thanking us for the opportunity to investigate such an active site. Later, Crystal and Rob shared the results of the investigation with us, including several EVPs. The team decided that the cantina is haunted by an intelligent entity. They think it's a female. They didn't find any evidence of our top-hatted gentleman, but perhaps he was just keeping quiet that evening. Doug swears Top Hat Guy is still there, as he saw the shadow the evening of April 7th during a Whistlepigs concert. 
Also, several weeks after the investigation, there was another curious incident at the bar that seems to support the theory that it's a woman who haunts the place. Rob and one of our bartenders, Colby, had locked the doors at one in the morning. They were sitting in the front room on the couch closest to the bar, talking and winding down from the evening. Colby is a tiny Italian girl in her twenties, cute as a bug with large, dark, trusting eyes. And unfortunately, she was having guy trouble. She poured her heart out to Rob, who listened patiently. Colby did a bit of quiet sobbing because, it's true, guys can be jerks at times. Rob pulled her in for a hug and she leaned in gratefully. Then she stiffened in Rob's arms. I can see a shadow on the pool table, she said in a fierce whisper. She sat up, shuddering. And why is it so cold all of a sudden? She rubbed her arms as she shivered. Both Rob and Colby are unyielding skeptics. But after Colby saw the shadow standing by the pool table, they were both left wondering if maybe her sobs had upset one of our resident spirits. They spent some time, these non-believers, trying to communicate with our ghost. Rob stood at the end of the bar, snapping pictures with Colby's cell phone, while Colby stood next to the pool table, encouraging the spirit to stand next to her. Nothing anomalous showed up in the pictures, although Colby says she saw the shadow again, this time hovering against the wall that forms the hallway that leads to the men's room. Eventually, Rob and Colby left for the evening, but they poured a shot glass full of whiskey and left it at the end of the bar as a friendly gesture for whoever it was Colby saw. Another group, Central Illinois Ghost Hunters, came in, a group that included a sensitive. It was during their visit that we discovered why the back hallway between the front room and the office was the source of such uneasy feelings. According to the medium, a woman had been seeing a man behind her husband's back. The husband came upon the couple in that back hallway, sharing a passionate embrace, and quickly learned the painful truth. He cold-cocked the man, laid him out on the floor, and hit the woman, too. The medium shook her head as she told us the story. She's so sad. She's stuck here in the office, and she just paces or sits on the bed. The medium meant the bed that had been in the office decades ago when the argument took place. I'm trying to get her to talk to me. I'm trying to tell her everything's okay now, but she's just ignoring me. This was, I think, more of a residual haunting rather than the intelligent spirits that hung around the place. It was this medium that told us about a couple of the spirits that regularly showed up. There was a stern man behind the bar who was quite displeased that we were poking around after hours with our cameras and recorders. He crossly told the medium that they weren't circus animals there for our amusement. Another spirit, related somehow to the sour bartender, was a glamorous woman who apparently took a shine to one of the male investigators. She sat down next to him, the medium said, and playfully asked if he wanted to dance with her. The medium said the spirit was a bit of a barfly, a smoker, and that her flirting with the investigator was not helping the bartender's mood. The same medium, later in the evening, told us wistfully, I've never seen so many spirits in one place. 
You've got ghosts from years and years, decades of history, and most of them are just wandering around oblivious of each other. People continued to have personal experiences with our spirits, even people who swear they don't believe in ghosts. I wrote up a post describing all of the things that happened in the bar. And as I was typing it up, I was sitting alone in the bar, watching the place while Rob ran an errand. The afternoon was warm, one of the first warm afternoons of the year, and I was wearing shorts. I was sitting at the bar with my bare knees touching the rough carpet that's tacked up to the bar. As I typed, the floor flexed behind me as if someone was walking across it. It flexed enough to bring my knees away from their contact with the rough surface. I whipped around to look, but of course there was no one there. I had announced to the ghosts after Rob had left that I was writing about them. Maybe somebody wanted to read over my shoulder as I worked. The cantina was our bar, but I didn't mind sharing it with a couple of friendly ghosts. Unfortunately, we no longer own the cantina, and the current owner is not the ghost-hunting sort. Sometimes I really wonder what our ghosts think of the place now, but I will always treasure the memories of the spirits that we met at the cantina. Thank you so much for tuning in. I look forward to being with you next time, and I hope you'll join me as we go Lights Out. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you for getting that to us in such a quick hurry. I'm sorry that I didn't know that you and Rob sold the bar. I was looking forward to an evening or two in there, watching the show pass through, and to looking out your windows to the past century on the street below. Ah, well. Stop by Sylvia's website, which we will have on the Tales to Terrify homepage, and on our Facebook page. And now, fiction. Tonight's tale is by Barbara A. Barnett. Barbara says of herself, in a nutshell, she is an avid rejection letter collector, which is to say that she's a writer. Also, she is a musician, a library and information science grad student, a coffee addict, wine lover, bad movie mocker, and an all-around geek. She describes her short fiction as running the gamut from dark to wacky. It has appeared in Fantasy Magazine, Daily Science Fiction, Black Static, Shimmer, Wild Stories 2011, The Year's Best Gay Speculative Fiction, and others. And tonight's story is decidedly not wacky. From all the zombie films we've seen, from the zombie tales we've read, and from our weekly Walking Dead experience, we know what is the sad and lonely fate of one who is bitten. Here's the rest of the story. Here is Barbara A. Barnett's The Holy Spear.
When Eric hit the ground, all he felt was pain, pavement scraping his cheek, machete hilt digging into his hip, forearm burning where he had been bitten. Sorry, mate, Jacob called down from the barricade. It's too late for you. With a groan, Eric rolled onto his back. The barricade loomed over him, a motley assemblage of sandbags, cars, concrete blocks, and whatever else had been scavenged from the city. The top, at least ten feet above, was a blur of spotlights, barbed wire and silhouettes peering down at him. One by one, the silhouettes began to disappear. No, Eric said, weakly at first, then with more force as he regained his breath and pushed himself to his feet. No, don't leave me out here. He ran along the base of the barricade. It stretched the width of the street, ended where it met the buildings that lined Rittenhouse Square, then began again at the next street down. Eric stopped outside the apartment building that served as the barricade's makeshift gatehouse. After plague day, he and Philadelphia's other survivors had boarded up the lower-level glass and replaced the main entrance with an iron doorway. Now, after nearly three months of fighting off the infected, the door was smeared with dried remnants of blood and flesh. Eric pounded on the door. Pain pulsed through his fist with every empty metallic thud he sent echoing through the night. And just when he thought he could pound no more, Jacob called to him from the barricade. You'll bring the whole mob of them with that racket. Is that how you want to die? Eric's fist met the door for one final feeble pound. During his time on the night watch, he had seen so many others in this position, shouting and crying as they begged to return, if only for a chance to say goodbye. Please, Eric said, his voice cracking as he trudged back toward Jacob. He knew how futile his plea was. He would be ignored, just as he had ignored every infected man and woman he had thrown over the barricade. Please, Jacob, I can't leave Morena, the baby. You know how this ends, Jacob said. Best you can do for your family is die like a man. Eric clutched his blood-drenched sleeve. The skin around the wound burned. Even within the barricade's confines, he should have been wearing his jacket. More protection. The infected man who had bitten him had been hiding in the basement of one of the barricade buildings, perhaps for days. Sometimes the symptoms took that long to surface. And how many days will I have, Eric wondered. The wind kicked up driving the ever-present scent of rotting flesh deep into his nostrils. How long until that odor no longer sickened him? How long until the infection coursing through his body drove him to crave the taste of the living? He reached into his pocket and pulled out the needle pack everyone on patrol carried. The foil-like wrapping glinted beneath the barricade's floodlights. Killing himself any other way would only hasten his return from death. But with the needle, one injection and it would be over, painless, and with no chance of reanimating. Is it even worth finding out how long I'd last? As if in answer, pain and heat engulfed him from within. Eric felt as if his heart would explode, and that every vein would burst along with it. He dropped to his knees, gritting his teeth. A convulsion racked his body, and the needle pack crumpled in his spasming grip. A tiny snap, like the smallest of bones breaking, sounded from within the package. Then, all at once, the pain subsided. Eric started to wipe the sweat from his brow, but went rigid when he saw that his arm was streaked with thick red lesions. He wouldn't have days before the infection took hold. He would have hours. Please, God, he whispered, then almost laughed at the absurdity of his words. Beyond the barricade, every man was a praying man, he had always joked. Now, though... He would prostrate himself before a thousand gods over if it meant he could escape this fate.
or if it could at least see his family once more and say goodbye. So Morena can turn you away as Jacob already has. The thought cut into him with a pain as raw and sharp as the infected man's teeth had felt sinking into his arm. He'd be some kind of monster to Morena now, a zombie. So many of Philadelphia's Plague Day survivors hated to so much as hear the word. I won't see my reality reduced to something out of some harmless B-movie, Jacob would have said. But now, faced with what he would become, Eric grew certain that no label, zombie, infected, or anything else could detract from its horror. He tore open the needle pack, then let out a quavering breath at what he found inside. The syringe had cracked and the vial containing the poison had shattered. The yellow-brown liquid dripped to the ground. No. Eric dropped the damaged contents and scrambled to his feet. Jacob, throw me another pack! Don't screw it up this time, I've only got one on me. Jacob reached toward his pocket, but froze as his gaze fixed on something in the distance. A second later, Eric heard what Jacob saw, and he shuddered. Moans in the darkness behind him, rising and falling and blending one into the other, their dirge-like tempo kept by the heavy slide of feet. A requiem sung not for the dead, but by the dead. The barricade became a flurry of shouts, movement, and guns clicking as Jacob and the others on patrol took up positions. Soon the area would be filled with the infected and a barrage of bullets. Eric knew from experience that the people on the barricade had no time for pity and no desire to sacrifice needle packs they might need for themselves. With no other choice, he fled into the darkness, beyond the reach of the floodlights, away from the barricade and the moans. No matter how little time he had left, he refused to join so soon in that dreadful chorus of the dead. Eric woke with the rise of the sun, at first surprised that he had slept at all, and then that he was still alive and still himself. The latter should have been a relief, but it felt more like torture. He had experienced more convulsions during the night, each so much more violent than the last that he grew certain it would be the one that finally reduced him to a mindless cannibal. In the end, though, the fits had only exhausted him until he had passed out. He stood with a groan, his body stiff and sore. In the daylight, he could finally make out the details of the bus shelter he had collapsed beside. The glass panel had shattered on one side, probably during the chaos that had accompanied Plague Day, when the chemical bomb struck nearby New York and the contagion began to spread. On the other side was a sun-faded poster of a man in medieval armor, face turned toward an unseen audience, mouth open in song. Beneath the man, the poster's text touted the opera company of Philadelphia's 2012-2013 season production of Wagner's Parsifal. Eric closed his eyes and fought back tears. He had been in rehearsal for that production when Plague Day hit. It would have been impossible to avoid the posters. They had been plastered all over this part of the city, yet it still felt like a cruel twist of fate that he had slept beside a reminder of the life he used to know. Sometimes that life seems like only yesterday, Marina had said to him just days before, her nose buried in the nape of his neck as they lay together. But most days it's hard to think of anything outside the barricade as part of the city anymore. There, alone amid the eerie stillness, Eric saw how right she had been to think that. With its derelict skyscrapers, abandoned cars, and empty streets, Philadelphia's center city district was much like one of the infected, a rotting shell of what it had once been. Eric stared down at the red lesions that riddled his hands and forearms. He yanked up his pant leg, then lifted his shirt to study his torso. 
everywhere that covered his body like some sort of grotesque cobweb. He peered into the rearview mirror of an abandoned car. The lesion streaked across his face as well. Every inch of his skin proclaimed him one of the infected. Yet here he was, life behind his eyes and his mind still his own. Eric sank to the pavement, his back against the car door. Why couldn't it just end already? He knew he should return to the barricade and beg for another needle before it was too late. But despair had sapped the strength from his legs. Those on patrol might shoot him on sight before he had a chance to make his plea. And what would the point be then? A death like that seemed a poor refuge. And so Eric sought the only other sanctuary he could think of. He began to sing. Vervolles erba, dem ich verfallen. Woeful inheritance that has fallen upon me. An aria sung by Amfortas, king of the knights who guarded the Holy Grail, the role Eric would have performed in Parsifal. The words came as instinctively as breathing, and though his once rich baritone was weak with disuse, the suffering that drove the melody forward, Amfortas's longing for death was all too easy to capture. Amfortas had been guardian of the spear used to pierce Jesus Christ during his crucifixion, but the holy spear had been stolen, and Amfortas stabbed with it. The wound caused him unbearable pain, and it would never heal until the spear was recovered. Ak erbarmen, Eric sang louder now as he reached the aria's end. Nimm mir mein erba, schließe die Wunde, das heilig ich sterbe, rein dir gesunde. O mercy, take back my inheritance, close my wound, that I may die holy, pure, and whole for thee. Eric's voice cracked on the final note. He braced himself for the unbearable silence that would follow, for too much quiet in so big a place, but it never came. Instead, the end of his song marked the start of another, the moaning chorus of the dead. They emerged from a subway entrance at the street corner, at least a dozen in all shambling toward him. The remains of a Kevlar vest hung from one of them, as tattered as her dead, flaking skin. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Eric shuddered when he saw her face. He had known her. Audra Carson, lost on Barricade's night watch weeks before. Let them come, he thought. Let them devour him whole before the infection took full hold and his flesh became unpalatable rot. Eric crawled away from the car, into their path. God, make it quick, he whispered. Though all hope for that had been crushed with his needle the night before, the infected would feast with the same deadened pace at which they moved. He squeezed his eyes shut and waited. Soon the dreadful melody of moans enveloped him. Cold, flaking flesh brushed against him, and he swallowed hard to keep from retching at the scent. His muscles tensed in anticipation of the first bite. The bite never came. Eric opened his eyes. The infected lumbered past, heedless of his presence. It's too late, came the thought, and his stomach clenched. They would not eat flesh as diseased as their own. It's a pheromone of some sort, a woman said from behind him. That's why they don't feed on people like us. Eric jumped to his feet. The woman who had spoken stood in the path of the infected, regarding them the way one would a specimen in a jar. The infected, however, took no notice of her. She looked to be in her forties like Eric, with brown skin and eyes possessed of an alertness that belied her claret-red lesions. What do you mean, people like us? Eric asked. She glanced at his wounded arm, clumsily wrapped with a strip he had torn off his shirt during the night. When were you infected? Yesterday. Convulsions? Not since last night. Then I mean, you're probably one of us, and immune. Eric studied her for some hint of a lie or danger, but her composed demeanor betrayed nothing. He had heard rumors about people living outside the barricade who had survived the infection, and he had dismissed those stories as hopeful delusions. But if they were true, and this woman was one of them, it might explain why his symptoms had yet to progress any further. Who are you? he asked. My name's Indira. I'm a doctor. She gestured down the street. I can take you to the others if you don't believe me. It might mean I'll live to see my family again. She started down the street without waiting for a response, and Eric followed. Indira led him through the detritus-strewn entrance of Hunnaman University Hospital's emergency room. Eric clasped a hand over his mouth and nose, afraid he would choke on the stench. He hated to imagine how horrifying this place had been on play day, with people who had been bitten stumbling through the doors and crowding into the waiting room. No idea what they were about to become. Now, though, the ER was empty, with spatters of dried blood on the walls and the check-in desk, gurneys overturned, small chunks of human remains festering beneath chairs. This hospital's in better shape than the rest of the ones in Center City, Indira said, striding forward through the refuse. The other entrances have been locked or blocked off, and the smell's usually enough to keep the scavengers away from this one. She unlocked a door on the far side of the writing room, and once they were through, relocked it behind them. A long corridor stretched ahead of them. 
The ER stench faded as they walked, replaced by the heavy scent of disinfectant. From overhead, dull red lights lent an inhuman glow to what in Eric's memory had already been cold and pristine and sterile. We've managed to keep the emergency generator going, Indira said. You're not an engineer by any chance, electrician, something useful? Eric's cheeks grew hot with embarrassment. I was an opera singer. With surprise, Indira didn't laugh. How long have you been like this? Eric asked as they continued through a maze of corridors, past empty rooms and nursing stations left in disarray. When Indira gave him a questioning look, he gestured to the lesions on his arms. He hated to say the word. Infected. Indira shrugged. Since Plague Day. And how many other of these immunes are there? Here? A dozen more or less. It's hard to say for certain. People come and go. Why stay here at all? If you talk to the people at the barricade, they might. You think I haven't tried? Indira gave a humorless laugh. Look at us. It doesn't matter if we can still talk and reason. Everyone's scared, paranoid. I've been accused of lying about how long ago I was bitten, or they say the infection's just taking longer with everyone here, or that we'll just end up spreading it some other way, coughing on someone, sharing a water glass, holding hands, looking at someone the wrong way. Eric stared at the floor. He asked himself what he would have done had Indira come to the barricade while he was on patrol, and he wasn't proud of the answer. He would have turned her away. Indira stopped outside a set of double doors and sighed as if the conversation had left her too exhausted to go any further. A few of the doctors within the barricade, they'll send me messages sometimes, usually through one of the scavenging teams. They're willing to exchange data, that, but that's all the risk they'll take. Indira pushed through the doors. Eric followed her into a small reception area with a nursing station and two corridors branching off in either direction. Whereas the rest of the hospital had been silent, here voices echoed from down the corridors. The scent of coffee, burnt after sitting too long, lingered in the air. A man with a clipboard emerged from a room down the leftmost corridor. He started to disappear into the room across from it, but sprang back into the hall upon spying Indira and Eric. Back already, Doc? he said, starting toward them. He looked to be in his twenties, with a freckled face that, in combination with his lesions, gave his skin a mottled look. Eric, Indira said, this is Owen Canning. Owen shook Eric's hand with disarming exuberance. Welcome to Club Immune, does wonders for the skin. Eric replied with an uneasy laugh. How could this kid make light of their situation? Owen tapped his clipboard. Back to the inmates for me. I'll catch up with you later, Doc. He jogged off with so much energy in his gait that Eric couldn't help making his own morbid stab at humor. Pretty chipper for a zombie, isn't he? I hate that word, Indira said, though her flat tone made it impossible to tell just how much offense she had taken. She led Eric down the corridor opposite the one Owen had taken. In one of the rooms they passed, Eric spied a couple whispering quietly to one another. A pregnant woman lying on the bed, hooked up to a monitoring device, and a man seated at her bedside. Both of them showed signs of the infection. Indira gave Eric's arm an impatient tug, and he continued on, following her into an empty room. A hospital bed occupied one corner, and the shelves and counters lining the walls were littered with reference books, liquid-filled vials, and a myriad of medical instruments, only some of which Eric could guess the uses for. Indira gestured toward the bed. I can take care of the bite, and I'd like to take a blood sample if you don't mind. 
Eric nodded, then took a seat. Any needle she stuck in him couldn't be worse than the one he had been prepared to kill himself with the night before. Don't let Owen fool you, Indira said as she removed his poor attempt at a dressing from his arm, sticky with blood. He puts up a brave front, but... She dabbed disinfectant on the wound, and Eric cringed at the resulting sting. But, he prompted, he and his wife were both infected on plague day, and Deer began wrapping the wound with a clean dressing. Her fingers rough against his skin. She was silent for a long while, then added, she was nine months pregnant, but not immune. No, and Deer finished with the dressing and turned away to prepare a needle. Owen refused to give up on her, though, so he kept her here in restraints and let her carry the child to term. Once the needle was ready, Indira probed Eric's arm for a suitable vein, then rubbed alcohol over the spot. He shivered at the cold, wet feel of it. So what happened? he asked. The child was born with the infection. Indira pushed the needle in, and a swirl of reddish-black blood filled the tube. Full-fledged. What did you do? The only thing I could do. Indira retracted the needle, pressed a square of gauze over the puncture, and instructed Eric to keep his hand on it, arm raised. No one was about to feed the thing. Despite all of the infected he had killed on the barricade, Eric grew queasy. He thought of his own son, Liam, only a year old. Could he have killed him had he been infected? Or Morena? Whether such an act bothered Indira, though, remained a mystery. She labeled and stored his blood sample with deadened efficiency, then returned to the bed and replaced the gauze with a bandage. I'm not a monster for killing them, she said. You're not a monster if you kill monsters. Eric gave a morbid laugh at the memory of Morena telling him that whenever he lamented his nights patrolling the barricade. I used to believe that before I became one myself. We're not like them, Indira said firmly. Monsters don't think and they don't reason. She took Eric by the arm led him to another room at the far end of the hall. This one she had to unlock first. The room was colder than the rest of the hospital, and the shelves held several clear containers, their contents nothing more than indistinct blobs suspended in a liquid that, beneath the red glow of the emergency lights, looked like blood. Eric stepped closer. Each container was marked with a specimen number and a name. Canning. Floating within were doll-sized limbs, a torso a round head with white eyes, flaking skin riddled with the all-too-familiar red lesions. Eric's stomach lurched. Indira was immediately at his side, wastebasket in hand. Eric snatched it from her, dropped to his knees, and vomited. What you just saw is a monster, Indira said, handing him a towel. You need to understand that. Eric took the towel and wiped vomit flecks from his mouth. And what did Owen say when you sliced it up? He was the first one to insist that we use it for study. Did you stuff his wife into a jar, too? Indira filled a cup at a nearby sink and handed it to Eric. Her every motion was so calm, so perfectly in anticipation of his reactions, that he wondered if she put every new immune through this. Owen thinks we'll find some kind of cure, Indira said on a stool. Her voice grew soft, tired. I let him believe that. Eric downed the water she had given him the bitter taste of bile remained in his mouth. That couple you saw in the other room, Indira said, Di and Denise, the odds of them both being immune were staggering, but there you have it. Maybe they'll have a better chance. You don't sound like you believe that. I don't. Then why bother with all of this? What else do I have to do? 
Indira stood and smoothed the wrinkles from her slacks. I'd like you to stay here a few days just in case, but the blood test probably won't turn up anything I haven't seen before. In which case you're free to do whatever. And what am I supposed to do? Eric had asked the same question months before when he was forced to abandon the opera stage for a gun and a machete. At least stage combat had prepared him for barricade patrol, he thought bitterly. And now here he was, sitting on a hospital floor beside a wastebasket splattered with vomit, Morena and their son and the walled life he had finally grown accustomed to gone as well. Plague day all over again. Some immune stay in the city, Indira said. Or even here at the hospital, some leave thinking they'll find help, maybe a place where the infection didn't spread. Some show up here from elsewhere looking for the same. Eric dragged himself to his feet. After months of no contact from the world beyond the city, he had given up hope on anyone swooping in to save the day. But if his blood test proved he wasn't immune, then he at least had a chance to see his family again, if only to say goodbye. Looks like I'll be staying here, he said. The Walnut Street shop had been hit by a scavenging mission at some point. The shattered storefront glass and overturned clothing racks could have been the result of Blake Day chaos, but all the leather and other thick clothing had been taken, anything hard to bite through. Eric donned a two-big sweatshirt he had swiped from the mess and pulled the hood as far around his face as possible. He added gloves and sunglasses next, the best he could do to hide his monstrous appearance. Finally, he reassured himself that the gun holstered at his side was secure. Indira had given it to him from a stash she kept at the hospital. He'd need more protection from the living than the dead, she had said. Outside, a ghostly stillness hung over the city. The morning sun glinted off everything high and low, from skyscraper windows to shards of glass on the sidewalks, so bright that the infected would probably try to remain hidden. They often ventured forth during the day, usually when drawn by noise, but seemed to prefer the dark. Good life in some ways, isn't it? Eric spun toward the voice, reaching for his gun. He found Owen sitting on the hood of a car that had been abandoned beside a forever expired parking meter. Take what you want when you want it, Owen said between puffs on a cigarette. No worries about the infected chowing down on you. Eric's hand fell away from the gun, but his tension remained. Did you follow me? Denise went into labor this morning, so Doc's a bit busy. Owen crushed out his cigarette on the car's hood. But she likes to keep tabs on her new releases, especially when she thinks they might do something stupid. What I do now is none of her business or yours. Eric stalked away, his pace quick and angry. No matter what Indira or Owen thought, he refused to believe he was a fool for wanting to see his wife and son. At the end of the block, he glanced back, expecting to have been followed, but Owen was still seated on the car, lighting another cigarette. Let him put his hope in a cure that will never come, Eric thought. With so little else moving in the city, finding one of the barricade's scavenging teams proved easy. Eric kept at least a block away as he trailed one heading southeast of the barricade. He followed the noise of their army-style van, which slowly wound its way between the abandoned vehicles that littered the streets. The scavenging teams had been gradually expanding their searches outward from the barricade, sometimes only a few blocks at a time, using the daylight hours to take whatever food, fuel, weapons, and other supplies they could carry. The van halted. As the team began to split off into pairs, Eric moved in closer, ducking behind cars and into doorways. 
He crawled beneath an SUV parked curbside in front of a Chinese restaurant with smashed windows and a missing door. Quietly, he slipped his gun from its holster. He had no idea how long he waited there, but finally, steps drew closer. He spied two pairs of thick-soled boots crunching on glass and kicking aside Plague Day debris. A bloody baseball bat, a torn jacket sleeve, a purse with cosmetics and store receipts pouring out of it. The boots disappeared into the Chinese restaurant. With the sun so bright, the scavengers would be more concerned about any infected lurking within than they were anything outside. And so Eric took his chance. He crawled out from beneath the SUV, checked that no other teams were looking his way, then strode into the shop, gun raised and cocked. The two scavengers, a man and a woman decked from head to toe in leather and Kevlar, had been heading toward the back of the restaurant, but whirled around at his approach. The woman held an automatic rifle, now trained on Eric. The man carried a flashlight and a machete. I don't want to hurt anyone, Eric said. I just want to get a message to someone inside the barricade. The scavengers regarded him with pinched, alert faces, a caution he couldn't blame them for. With his gloves and hood and heavy clothing, he could be someone wisely offering as little skin to bite as possible as easily as he could be someone hiding signs of infection. While keeping his gun steady in one hand, Eric reached into his pants pocket with the other and pulled out a message he had written the night before. He held the envelope up long enough to assure the scavengers that it wasn't anything dangerous, then tossed it toward them. Morena Nicholson! He backed away, slowly, every step accompanied by the creak of the floor. The name's on the envelope. And what's your name? The male scavenger asked. His partner with the rifle began to inch forward. We can help you. Eric continued moving back, the woman forward, the floor creaking in counterpoint to the other steps. Soon, sunlight filtered into Eric's peripheral vision. He was almost clear of the door. You can't help me, he said, and ran. A shot rang out, but he had no time to worry about how close it came. He fled to where he knew they wouldn't follow, down the steps at the street corner into the subway tunnels. At the bottom of the stairs, he made it only a few steps before tripping over a body and falling into several others who moaned and stirred beneath him. Their foul death scent was enough to identify them as fully infected. Eric covered his mouth and waited for his nausea to pass, then pushed himself up. Once his eyes adjusted to the dark, he set forth, picking his way through the eerie mass of the slumbering dead. He trembled at the thought of how far he would have to travel underground to avoid the scavenging team. The infected wouldn't gnaw on him, but his own fear would. Fear that the scavengers would not deliver his message to Morena, or worse yet, that they would, but she would choose to ignore its plea. The next day at noon, Eric made his way across Rittenhouse Square toward the barricade. The sun shone down with more intensity than the day before, seeming to whitewash the blood from the square's sidewalks and benches, even from the bark of the trees. At least ten armed guards patrol the barricade, and more stared down from the windows of the apartment building that served as gatehouse. A heavier patrol than usual for this time of day. If not Morena, then someone had gotten his message and feared that he had planned something worse than goodbye. Morena Nicholson, Eric said, arms raised in supplication as he drew closer. I just want to talk to her. Still hanging on, you sorry bastard, came Jacob's voice from one of the windows. 
though he normally wouldn't have been on watch so early in the day. Was he there out of a lingering sense of friendship, Eric wondered, or merely because he had been recruited along with the patrol's other extra guards? A metallic clank drew Eric's attention toward the gatehouse door. A square panel on the iron door slid aside, revealing a barred window, barely wide enough for him to see the person behind it, olive skin and a mass of dark curls braided back. Morena. Eric darted toward the door. Morena, I... His throat grew so thick that for a moment he found it impossible to speak. Not that he had ever figured out what he was going to say in the first place. He peered through the window. Their son wasn't with her. Where's Liam? With a friend. Marina's voice trembled with a thread of tears. No one wanted to let me talk to you, let alone bring the baby. Eric exhaled sharply. An arsenal trained on him and an iron door between them, and still they would deny him a chance to see his son. I was so sure you were gone. Marina raised a hand toward the window as if to reach through to touch him, then drew it away. I spoke to the doctors, everyone I could think of. I showed them your note, but they said you could still spread the infection that you still might turn into. She swiped at her tearing eyes. They said it's too late for you. Do you believe that? I don't know. Eric's breaths quickened each one laced with more desperation than the last. Indira had told him this would happen, and while he hadn't doubted her, he had been foolishly determined to make his plea anyway, thinking it would be harder to say goodbye if he didn't at least try. But seeing Morena now, so close and yet beyond his reach, made one thing clear. Goodbye would never be enough for him. You have to keep trying, he said. But what if they're right? What if this doctor you met is wrong and the ones here are right? They're not, and you have to convince them of that. If they don't believe you... He pressed his hands against the door, wishing he could reach through it and touch her. You could come with me. The hospital's secure. I can keep you and Liam safe, and... Don't make this harder than it already is. I'm not one of those things, Morena. Then let me see your face. No. The word left Eric's mouth before he could think better of it. How could he expect anything of her when he was too frightened to show his face? Slowly, despite his fingers stiffening in protest, he took off his sunglasses and pulled off his hood. Morena backed away from the door with a gasp. I know how it looks, Eric said, but I'm not one of them. I'm not going to be. You can't know that. Morena sucked in a deep breath as she fought off more tears. Look at you. Would you risk that happening to Liam? Eric leaned his head against the barred window, shame digging deep into his gut. No, he wouldn't. As desperate as he was, he couldn't risk the lives of his family any more than he could live without them. And there was only one solution to that dilemma. Morena fumbled something out of her pocket. Jacob said I should give this to you. She pushed the item between the window's bars. A needle pack. Just in case. Grief seized Eric so violently that he imagined it would have been less painful had a mob of the infected eaten him alive. But he had become nothing to the dead and such a monster to the living that his own wife would hand him the means to end it. I'm so sorry, she said, her voice barely discernible through her tears. I love you, Eric, but I can't do this. I just can't. I love you too, Eric whispered. For a long moment, he stood there with his eyes closed, his head pressed against the cold iron. Morena sobs, tearing apart the last shred of hope he had been harboring. With a trembling hand, he took the needle pack from her. When you tell Liam how his father died, make up something better than this. 
He hurried away from the barricade. He couldn't bear to turn back, not even for one last look, and so he stumbled over curbs and into cars and lampposts, blinded by tears and the harsh sunlight. When he was too far away to hear Marina's sobs, they still lingered in his ears, accompanied by the percussive assault of blood pounding in his head. All he could think as he pressed forward was that he wanted it to stop. After several blocks, he reached the Academy of Music. His steps slowed. The old European-style opera house had been a second home for him in another life, and as he walked through its shattered glass doors and into the lobby, he thought it as fitting a place as any to silence the life for good. The Grand Old Lady of Broad Street, the Academy had once been called. Now, though, grandeur had given way to shadow. The crystal chandelier hung dark and imposing overhead, and a golden bust of Mozart stared down from the proscenium arch with eyes that seemed frozen in fright. Scattered across the stage and the maroon-cushioned seats, several of the infected lay in lifeless slumber. Eric climbed onto the stage. The lights had always been so hot and bright when he had stood there in the past, buried under makeup and costume. But there was no need for lights when your audience was the dead, and no need for a costume when your own skin proclaimed you a monster. Eric tore open the needle pack. The hall amplified every sound, the crinkling of the foil, the papery ripple as the packaging fluttered to the floor, the silence as he filled the syringe with the poison, and the clatter as the empty vial struck the stage. With the needle in hand, Eric began to sing, Bevoles elba dem ikverfallen. The aria he had sung in the street a week before, only this time the pain inside him bolstered his voice instead of choking it. The melody echoed through the hall, vulnerable without an orchestra beneath it, yet strong enough that the infected around him moaned in agitation. Nimm mir mein Erba, he sang, remembering the exhilaration he used to feel, pushing his voice over the swell of an orchestra to fill the hall. Schließe die Wunder, das heilig ich sterbe, rein dir gesunder. Take back my inheritance, close my wound that I may die holy, pure and whole for thee. In a long, painful moment, he let the final note ring through the dark hall, the vibrato as tremulous as the hand holding the needle. When he finally let the note die out, the silence that followed was so full and heavy that he could have sworn it was tangible. Then came the applause. Eric fumbled the needle in surprise. Owen was making his way up the aisle, clapping. Funny coincidence, Owen said. But I saw you on stage when I was in college. He slipped into a seat in the front row. Salome, about two years ago. Would have seen you in Parsifal, too, if Plague Day hadn't fouled up my plans. Eric bit his lip to hold back the rage and grief roaring inside him. Who the hell was this kid to so nonchalantly bring up the past when he was only a needle's plunge away from death? Unless you care to watch a man die, Eric said through gritted teeth, I suggest you leave. His throat was thick and his hands unsteady, but still he pulled up a sleeve and pressed the needle tip to his arm. Amfortas is healed in the end, Owen said. The needle slipped from his arm and Eric glared at Owen. What? At the end of the opera, Amfortas begs his knights to kill him and end his suffering, 
but Parseval touches the Holy Spear to his wounded side, and Amfortas is healed. Eric laughed in exasperation, as if he didn't know the character he had performed on so many stages, and as if he didn't see what Owen was trying to do. You know Indira's just humoring you, right? The good old doc isn't going to find a cure, and she knows it. At least she's doing something. What's the point? Owen shook his head. Just like something out of a goddamn opera, isn't it? The brave soldier from the barricade throws his life away because he can't be with the woman he loves. Owen clapped his hands to the armrest and stood, the movement angrily decisive, the voice that followed laced with disgust. At least your wife's still alive, you selfish prick. At least your son's going to live instead of getting chopped up for study. Eric pressed the needle tip to his arm again, but hesitated, despair now tampered by guilt. You don't know what the point is, Owen said. My wife, my child, I'd like to think they died for a purpose. That the doc will find something in all those chopped up bits of my life, that's the goddamn point. He held Eric's gaze for a moment, looking so much older than his twenty-something years. Finally, he turned away and started up the aisle, singing in a tenor that was thin in sound but strong in conviction. Nur eine Waffe taugt. Die Wunde schließt der Speer nur, der sie schlug. One weapon alone will serve. Only the spear that struck you heals the wound. Parsifal's words as he heals Amfortas. Eric sighed. There would be no miraculous healing for him. He was not so naive as to believe that. But he remembered a time when Morena had been so proud of the way he had gone on stage for an opera's closing night despite chills and a near-fever temperature. What had happened to the man who could sing through the pain and play his role to the end? For what it's worth, Owen called back over his shoulder, I was really looking forward to seeing your Amfortas. Eric dropped the needle. When Eric returned to the hospital, he had no idea how much time had passed. It could have been hours, or it could have been minutes. As he wound his way... Through the red glow of the corridors in search of Owen, shame and uncertainty slowed his steps. What kind of thanks did he give for being forced to acknowledge his selfish cowardice? And what kind of apology for having failed to see it on his own? He pushed through the double doors and Deer had led him through only a week before. In the next room, Owen stood leaning against the nursing station, an expectant look on his face as if he had been waiting for Eric all this time. Eric's anger resurfaced at the presumption, but dissipated into surprise when laughter sounded from one of the nearby corridors. The hospital had been so still and silent that the sound seemed like an intrusion from another world. "'What's going on?' Eric asked. Owen smirked. Without a word, he started down the corridor, and Eric followed. They stopped outside the room where Eric had spied the infected pregnant couple on his first day there, Ty and Denise. Inside... Ty sat on the edge of the bed, stroking Denise's hair, gushing over the infant cradled in her arms, an infant with no visible signs of the infection. Indira, who had been standing at the foot of the bed, rushed over to Eric. I spent all night running tests, she said, pulling him into the room. I'm still running tests, but... She gestured excitedly to the baby. Our own systems are immune to an extent, but this little girl, her body seems to have killed off the infection entirely. Indira's voice swelled as she spoke, hope and joy filling an abyss that had been empty of all but resignation before. Do you have any idea what this means? 
pain still stung deep within Eric. This didn't restore what he had lost, but this time, the tears welling in his eyes sprang more from hope than from grief. He glanced at Owen, ready to offer his inadequate thanks to be standing there at all. But the nod and the smile he received from the young man told him there was no need. Parsifal had fulfilled his quest. Eric clasped Indira's hand. It means you found us the Holy Spear, Doc. Thanks for letting us hear the story, Barbara. The Holy Spear may be found in the October-November 2011 issue of Black Static. That's issue 25. It also received honorable mention, by the way, in Ellen Datlow's Best Horror of the Year, Volume 4. Barbara lives in the New Jersey suburbs of Philadelphia with her husband, whom she says indulges her geeky tendencies and ensures that she is well-caffeinated each morning. She is a graduate of the Odyssey Writing Workshop, at which she learned valuable things about writing and the evil ways of chickens. Hmm. Barbara is at work on a book that she lovingly refers to as her big, fat, epic fantasy novel. The Holy Spear was read for us tonight by Mr. Jedediah Shepler. Jed was born in Texas, spent formative years in Northern California, then returned to Texas for a summa cum laude honors degree in anthropology from the University of Houston. He lives in what he calls the traditions of both European Renaissance and feudal Japan and believes that diverse pursuits and interests build keen minds and bodies. He is, consequently, a student of martial arts, a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and is a surfer, artist, and filmmaker. He's acted in and produced music videos, as well as served as a rigger, greensman, propman, and stunt coordinator. He also dabbles in music. On the other side of the fence, Jed has worked in logistics, dog training, security, education, and other jobs for which he says he's not sure he's qualified to do anything with. He also allows that he is a great respecter of fine storytelling and of the tellers of tales, and that he is very proud to contribute his narrations. Looking at Jed's bio, the thing that tweaks my fancy among all those efforts is that he's also what he calls a competent flintnapper. That's a maker of stone tools. And he is a knife thrower. Currently, Jed is working on a book about late 19th and early 20th century glass bottles found in Houston and of the forgotten history that is all around us and just under our feet. He lives in the Houston Heights of Texas and sometimes posts short humorous movie reviews that he says no one reads. Well, I do. You can join me by stopping at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com and we'll have that on our Facebook and on the Tales to Terrify homepage as well. And that Children of the Night will do for the evening. 
I apologize for shooing you out on so chill and windy a night into a lightless world where there might be snow at any minute and where temperatures hover at brrrr. But one more thing, whilst you bundle and wrap, if you stop by the Tales to Terrify homepage, at talestoterrify.com, of course, I do hope you'll note the little button to the right of the cover art, the button that says Donate, near the words Support the Show. I hope you'll do just that. We can use it, really. And we are, after all, Podcast of the Year. And now, it is time for you to be off and into your own personal futures. Until next week at this time, anyway. Tonight's streets should be relatively clear of walkers, post-bar shufflers, and those wearing the dried remains of blood and flesh. You can certainly outrun them, the slow and chill weather like this. But keep your syringe capped and safe. Dodge, weave, make a final bright dash to your porch, your locked door. Fumble for the key, of course, while the shuffles behind you grow closer. Then clamber up the stairs and let your breath slowly return. Breathe steady, steady, in and out, in and out, in and out, as you ready yourself for the dark of sleep. Well, you know what I say to all of that. Pleasant dreams. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.